welcome to another episode of Untrue Crime, where fiction meets felonies. I'm Alex. And I'm Belle. Today's episode includes content warnings for sexual assault threats and suicide. This is your fair warning that this podcast uses explicit language before someone walks in at the wrong time. As a last warning, today's episode includes sexual assault threats and suicide. Let's get this started, shall we? We shall. Our story today takes place in the world we know with a few adjustments. After all, this is untrue crime. The man who this episode is technically about is Angus Keeler, a guy from Wyoming who will meet an unfortunate end. Angus was born in Cheyenne in 1998 to Buffy and Roland Keeler, a healthy baby boy who made his parents incredibly proud as he grew. Angus was passionate about football and Legos and all the kinds of things people expect little boys to like. However, he had some behavior problems that no one could seem to solve. He repeatedly was in trouble for pulling girls' hair, bothering classmates, and not listening to teachers. His parents were the only ones who could really control him, specifically his father. Regardless, his parents adored him. His mother was adamant that nothing was his fault when he got in trouble at school, and neighbors and family complained that he never got any discipline. I hate those kinds of parents where it's like, well, he was just, he was just a little bit angry today he was just he was a little bit he didn't have his breakfast so that's why he hit your other kid sorry yeah sorry he's being violent uh it was actually just because he's had a really hard day you know his hamster is under the weather yeah exactly yep there's there's nothing worse for the school system these days than parents who don't discipline their kids and that's that's all i can say on that yeah, there's nothing else that we should be saying on the podcast about uh, children of 2020 birth. Yeah. In middle school, Angus got in trouble for sneaking into the girls' bathroom, presumably to peek. The school suspended him. Oh. But of course- yeah. <clears throat> wow. Okay. He did. Huge jump there. Yep, we went from pulling girls' hair to, like, sexual harassment so great it's not it's not an unexpected shift because when parents you know you know when they glorify the act of harming girls and the act of liking them that of course it's Mm going to lead to someone that's going to sexually assault someone else hey just for listeners if a boy is mean to you and you're, and adults tell you, oh, it's just because he likes you. Don't listen to that bullshit. He should respect you, and he should be kind to you if he likes you. If you are not old enough to already know that. That's true. You they need to not be listening to this, to this podcast. And if you think, oh, no, I'm an exception, you're not. Not you're the not. exception. You there are not the exception. You are you are a you are a baby and you're a child. I know that you're I know that you're so upset that I just said that, but you will understand when you're our age. Yeah. The school suspended him, but of course his parents insisted he had done nothing. Oh wow, wrong. the school system did something in America? They did. No. They did. No wonder this but, is untrue crime. But His parents insisted he had done nothing wrong after he claimed that he just accidentally went to the wrong bathroom and that he wasn't doing anything bad in there. He spent his suspension playing video games, according to his older brother, Dennis. In high school, Angus was known as a player. He was handsome, so it wasn't hard for him to get women to sleep with him, and he was popular too. Around this time, his older brother, Dennis, moved away to college in another state, and he cut off contact with Angus and his parents. 
man, Dennis? I don't know what's going on with him. He just seems like an important part of the story that just keeps slipping his way in and out. It was during college that Angus met Charlie Easton. Shifting our focus, let's talk about Charlie and her family. Charlie Raina Easton is the daughter of Preston Easton, founder of Easton Enterprises. Preston was a famous race car driver for Joe Gibbs Racing in the 80s and the 90s. He was an incredible success, and about halfway into his career, he met a woman named Belinda Tanaloo at a coffee shop. They fell in love and married in 1995, the same year that Preston opened the first Easton Enterprises Hotel. The chain grew, with at least one opening in most major cities in the United States and all along the NASCAR circuit. It became well known for its luxurious accommodations. The rich, the famous, and those who were willing to drop half their life savings stayed there. With excellent ratings and the upper crust considering it their go-to place to stay when traveling, Preston Easton became a very rich man. He worked a lot, constantly doing everything he could to manage his expanding business and do it right. Preston, having come from a family that lived paycheck to paycheck in Detroit, refused to become like many of his peers in business. His employees were paid handsomely and treated well, his businesses remained as eco-friendly as possible, and products were sourced from local businesses or purchased from other companies deemed suitable. Nothing was unethically outsourced. Because he had to manage so many accounts and took a personal interest in the issues his employees and his guests raised, he didn't have a lot of time for Belinda after the company had started. This didn't bother her, though, because she was happy to spend the money Preston made as he stored it in savings, spent it, or gave it back to the community. Listen, I know that that's supposed to paint her in a bad light, but the older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, maybe marrying Rich is a good idea for me. Because I, <laughs> I'm i willing to sacrifice some of the love and care in that relationship to be financially secure. I think that if, it had, if the story of Belinda ended right there, I would have been like, yeah, okay, I'm with her. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> obviously. Preston retired from NASCAR as he became successful as an entrepreneur, and four years See, later- See, I also understand that, because it's like, man, I, I'm making bank. Why would I do yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, he, he loved it. It was his passion, but he simply, like, had done it for a while. He was really good at it. It was time to move on to greener pastures. I... I, I can't really, I would never leave skating for anything. If I married into, like, extreme wealth, I would ask them to build a skating rink that I could direct. That's and it beautiful. would be my little, my little pretty princess thing. But she, what an she would have to love. be really, really rich. And, because rinks cost millions to open. Well, well then you, you found yourself a keeper if you find someone who will build you a rink. If I found someone that would build me a rank, they literally would never have to worry about divorce. No, but I'm saying they, they. I'm only going to marry a woman. <laughs> I'm very imagine... adamant about that. Not in like a transphobic way. Let's all, let's all be clear. Lesbians can date non-binary people. That's never been an issue. But I personally want to date a woman. Imagine, though, if you didn't have to ask for the rank to be built. Imagine if you were dating someone and they really just like fell in love with you and built you a rank. I, I would... That would be the biggest profession of love. That would be my best ending, you know? Not ending. Would it would be, be a beginning. It would be a beginning. Our beginning. And she could help me design the rank and everything. And oh my god. Preston retired from NASCAR as he became successful as an entrepreneur. And four years later, in 2000, Belinda had a daughter that they named Charlie. 
Charlie looked more like her mother than she did her father, from her curls to her darker skin tone to her smile. However, this did little to endear her to her mother, as Belinda began struggling more with mental health and addiction issues after Charlie was born. She and Preston divorced in 2005 after discovery that Belinda had been severely neglecting Charlie while Preston was away on a business trip, making a splash in the tabloids. Eventually, Preston remarried a woman named Mira, whom he is with to this day. Having money, Preston attracted attention, and anyone with eyes could see how much he adored his daughter. She made it unscathed out of two attempted kidnappings in her childhood, but they wouldn't be the last ones. She grew into a fearless, headstrong, opinionated young lady. Competitive, confident, and fun, she often spent her high school days messing around behind her father's back. She liked to go to parties with friends and street race outside the city, as she lived in New York when she wasn't traveling with her dad for his work. When she was 18 years old, Charlie met Angus Keeler. She was at a party with a few bad friends who didn't truly care about her well-being, so none of them were looking out for her or each other. None of them noticed when Charlie left with him, let alone who she was with. Angus was in town because he was attempting to visit his brother, Dennis. Dennis. Yeah, Dennis, our man, who was at NYU. Dennis refused to see him. Angry and hurt, he left and ran into some girls on their way to a house party off campus. His charms won them over, and they let him catch a ride with them to the house. This party was a mix of young students from the general area. Charlie didn't attend NYU, which was in lower Manhattan, as she was still in high school at the time. Instead, she went to a private school in upper Manhattan. The two are about 30 minutes away by subway, and about halfway between them is a $4 million townhouse where the party took place, thrown by some very well-off students who were ready to rebel while their parents were out of town. According to the NYU girls that Angus traveled with, they arrived at the party around 10 p.m. Charlie and her friends arrived around half an hour later. Eventually, Angus and Charlie met. Evidently, Angus seemed like he'd be a decent one-night stand to Charlie, and Angus realized that Charlie was the very pretty daughter of Preston Easton. Angus owned an RV that he drove around the country rather than attending college or getting a job. This would be an adventurous, interesting, and perhaps inspiring way to live if he supported himself, but of course he relied on his parents just like he always had. They sent him money for everything, and he refused to get a job in any of the towns he stopped in. He had not rented a hotel in the city for the night, and since there is basically no RV parking in New York City, especially for more than 24 hours, are there Angus are there no Cracker Barrels in New York City? Like in the city city? I, feel, I don't. Well, know. I've never been there. I have. Because um, Cracker Barrels I don't all know. have RV parking. I. I don't know if there is a Cracker Barrel in NYC, but I have checked to see if there is RV parking in the city-city part of New York, and technically there is, but it is slim to none, and none of it seems to be more than 24 hours that I looked at. I'm sure some New Yorker out there knows of a place where you can park an RV for a little longer than that, but it's not super obvious to me, so I assume it was not super obvious to Angus Keeler. That, that is fair. Angus left his vehicle outside the city and took a rideshare app's car to campus, so they used it once again to get back to his trailer. Charlie was clear that she slept with him willingly, though she described it as, quote, lackluster, and said that she thought that he had a house or something outside the city, as opposed to the trailer that was in need of a proper tidying up. Regardless, she went through with it on her own free will. 
She used the restroom afterwards and pulled her clothes on while Angus went to the kitchen to get something to eat. When he came back to see her grabbing her purse, something must have snapped. He hit her over the head with something from his cluttered nightstand, Charlie remains to this day unaware of what, and tied her to his headboard. With a concussion, and with Charlie noting that she was dazed after being struck, her account's validity must be called into question afterwards, and thus we will proceed only with the facts of the case. At 1.30 a.m., Preston Easton's concentration on some paperwork that he'd been working on for far longer than he wanted to was broken by an incoming call from Charlie's phone. Earlier, she had told him that she was staying with her best friend, Reese Vance, for the night, so he assumed that she forgot something when she called. He picked it up, ready to tease her about neglecting to pack something, but the voice on the other end was not his daughter. Angus Keeler demanded $100,000 of the Eastons in exchange for their daughter. I feel, I feel like you should have bumped up that price. I know. I would have. That is, that is a need... weak-ass price. First of all, like, horrible think... situation, but man, $100,000, that's pocket changed rich people. That's exactly what the next sentence says. The next sentence says, this was pocket changed to the family, oh. but it didn't cross his mind to ask for more because he was an idiot. I think that kidnapping in for ransom is a stupid crime in general. That is so hard to it pull is off so, successfully. It's so dumb. It's just, it's never gonna work. There are so few instances in which it actually worked. And as technology becomes more advanced, it only gets harder. Exactly. If the only... I think kidnapping in general is just a really poor crime. There are ways to extort people for money without kidnapping someone. Blackmail them. You know, hack their computer. See what their search history says. Don't actually do that. Those are not real suggestions. These are not these Listeners. are not real suggestions, <laughs> but we write untrue crime, so it would make sense that right, we right, right. would think of these things. I would like to say that Charlie's could be uh, he could take Charlie to court for defamation for publicly shaming him on his dick work. Yeah. Yeah, he could. I mean, it probably wouldn't go through, but if he wanted, he could probably get a settlement out of it, so that way it wasn't a whole public thing, because a, a lot of companies and a lot of rich people will do that, where they're just like, just take money and shut up. Yeah, and it's, the Eastons have a very good lawyer, so if he wanted to, he could have done that, but he, she only described the sex Yeah, but that's what, that's what I'm saying. If, if you even start a, like, a defamation case, that's going to hit the press. So most most rich people will just be like, just take money, go away. Yeah, yeah. But the thing you, is, you you got us. <laughs> oh no! She described it as lackluster in her account that she was giving to the police about him. So at mm. that point, there wasn't much that he could have done. If she had stated anything publicly, yeah. So okay, he told them to fill a suitcase with the money and drop. Oh it my behind god. I know. There's no way that you can put a tracker in a suitcase. It gets better. And drop it behind the Liberty Science Center. Which was about a ten minute drive from the RV park where he was stationed. That, oh my god. We write a lot about good criminals on this show. I felt like it was important to include your run-of-the-mill idiot criminal. At some point. Yeah. I agree. In his phone call, he told Preston that if he did not have the money there within an hour, he would rape and kill Charlie on camera and send the video to him and his wife. As proof that Charlie was alive, she was briefly allowed to speak to her father on the phone. 
As a reminder, Charlie was a teenager in high school. She had snuck out and gone to a party where she'd gone home with a stranger. So, when handed the phone, she began to apologize to her dad for what she had done. He attempted to assure her and tell her that she was going to be okay, but Angus took the phone away and told him to hurry up with the money. I think that's sad. It shows that she's very much just a teenager. I wrote a scene once with an AU, because I know some of you. It was with Vivian Yale. And so this is not canon. If you're here for canon, it's not. But this is not the same canon that we get in The Entrapment of Mika. This is No, this is no, that is all. canon. This is this is a completely different thing. It was just for fun. But Vivian had gotten kidnapped and Yale was obviously throwing a hissy fit of murder. And mm-hmm. when handed the phone, all she did was try to make sure that Vivi was like, hey, are you safe? Are you still alive? Are they going to hurt you? I am coming to get you. And one of the things that I thought that she did that was one of the sweetest things ever is that she she manipulated her a little bit and she said that the kid that was with her who was 16 at the time, she said he's 18 because Vivian would have had an opposition to, to Yale hurting the kid, but Yale lied to her to make sure that she could get her out at any cost necessary. Huh. It was a really hard scene. <laughs> okay. Of course, Preston did involve the police, who split into two groups. The first arrested Angus when he arrived at the science center himself to pick up the money. The second went after Charlie. Angus hadn't done anything to her phone, so her location was still on, and they were easily able to find her. And it kills me because not only was her location on, you made a call! You made From a call her phone. her phone! Yeah, they're going to be able to find you. Charlie went to the hospital but was mostly okay if shaken up. Her parents were, obviously, furious, but they prioritized being there for her first. When she was cleared to go home, she did. The case against Angus Keeler was built, and his trial was set for about a year after he was arrested. He was accused of false imprisonment, evading arrest, and a third-degree indicatable offense for threatening Charlie. His bail was too high for his family to pay, so he remained in jail. It wasn't hard to prove him guilty, but the lawyers began to consider a settlement around the same time that a sexual assault allegation was posted online about the judge that was to preside over the case. On December 16, 2019, the day before Angus's trial, a correctional officer went to the jail cell that was supposed to be containing Angus Keeler. The window on the door had been spray-painted over, causing immediate alarm. When the officers went in, they found the body of Angus Keeler dangling from the ceiling, hung with his pants around his neck tied into a noose. There was never a trial for his crimes. Instead, his death was investigated, and it was eventually ruled a suicide. After all, the door was locked, there was no sign of a struggle, and the outside windows were far too small for a person to fit through. There was no note, but there was also no evidence of anyone coming in or out of the cell on the security cameras. Questions remain, though. The most obvious is if the Eastons had something to do with his death. None of them could have done it personally, as they were all at a dinner with a family friend that evening. Those close to the Eastons claimed that they could never hurt a fly, either. After all, they had done a lot of good for the U.S. economy, having provided lots of stable, good-paying jobs, and the Easton Foundation, a nonprofit run by Mary Easton, has worked tirelessly and has nearly eradicated the disease leishmaniasis. Murder, according to those close to them, is simply not in the cards. 
Then again, even if it wasn't them directly, they have tons of money. It wouldn't be hard to pay someone off to do it. Or maybe it was suicide, considering the questions surrounding how in the hell someone would have been able to murder him. But if it was a suicide, how did Angus get the spray paint? Why did he cover the window? And why did he commit suicide the day before his trial when there was evidence indicating that he may be able to get off with an easier sentence? Whatever happened to Angus, he was largely forgotten after his death. His parents attempted to run a campaign for justice for him, but most people weren't interested in doing anything for a man who had kidnapped a younger girl and held her at ransom when it was explicitly clear that he was guilty. People tried to get in contact with his brother, but Dennis Keeler only gave one quote to the press. He got what was coming to him. Dennis the man! That's all for today. Damn with the plan! <laughs> Thanks for listening. Send in your thoughts, theories, questions, and comments to untruecrimethepodcast at gmail.com, all lowercase, for a chance to be featured at the end of the season during our Q&A. Bye! Bye!